Hey there, Music Podcast for Kids listeners. This message is for teachers and homeschool parents. The Music Podcast for Kids has an awesome digital resource to enhance the experience of the show in your classroom. Easily download 10 of our popular shows in audio and video form, digital and printable listening guides, sing-along songs in video and audio form, percussion parts, lyric and lead sheets. And most importantly, completed lesson plans from our nationally certified teacher, Mr. Fight. Our resource is great for virtual and in-person teaching for homeschool, substitute, and classroom teachers. Find the resources on our website, themusicpodcastforkids.com. We hope you enjoy the show. That's what we're gonna do. Mr. Henry, Mr. Fight, exploring along with you. Learning music, having fun. That's what we're gonna do. Mr. Henry, Mr. Fight, love hanging out with you. The Music Podcast for Kids. Hello, and welcome to The Music Podcast for Kids. We're your hosts, Mr. Henry and Mr. Fight. Music Educators Extraordinaire! The Music Podcast for Kids is a fun and educational podcast where we learn and explore the best subject ever. Music! Just chat. 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 Susie Digby is a leading choral conductor and music educator and has trailblazed the revival of singing in schools and communities in the UK for over three decades. In 2016, she founded Aura Singers to commission, record, and perform international choral works as reflections of Renaissance masterpieces. Susie founded the following UK national organizations, the Voices Foundation, the UK's leading primary music charity, Vocal Futures, and the London Youth Choir, which we talk about in our interview with Susie. And she also offers some great words of inspiration to kids who want to engage in music. We have a very special guest with us today on the Music Podcast for Kids, Susie Digby. Thanks for being on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for asking me. Absolutely. So since we're a music podcast for kids, we always like to ask our special guests how they got started with music. So can you tell us how old you were when you started taking uh, private lessons or if you took private lessons and kind of where your musical journey took you through your growing up years? Sure. Well, the first thing I remember is I started singing at the age of three and I haven't really stopped ever since. <laughs> and so it was really singing. I loved singing. And then... Um, I actually started piano lessons quite late. I started playing at about about the age of eight, but I didn't have Mm. formal lessons until I was about 12. And then piano and singing together were the the two things that I really loved. My dad took me to the local church choir and he sang tenor and I sang soprano and I was nine. 
So I really, really got into singing in choirs very, very young. That's great. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And so, um, so speaking of your musical journey as a child, you've developed many different organizations that help kids. Um, one of them being the group called Vocal Futures, which nurtures young audiences for classical music. Can you tell us a little more about that program? Yeah, so um, it really all started when I was at this amazing concert um, called Talis in Wonderland. <laughs> and um, it was so dynamic and the singers were running around the hall and um, we had speakers in front of us and, and all kinds of exciting things. And I remember thinking, wow, my daughter would love this, but she never comes to classical concerts. And she was, I guess, around 20, maybe 18 at the time. And I thought, I started thinking about it. I thought, why was it that when I was a kid, I loved going to concerts with my dad. Mm -hmm. You know, I would run after him. when If he went to go and see a, a Wagner opera or something, I'd run after him and say, Dad, please take me to, please take me. <laughs> and my kids, both of them, although they had, I was really passionate about music, they really weren't interested in coming to concerts. And so I thought, what is this? What's going on? So, you know, over the last 30 years, the attendance of young people at classical concerts has really, really dropped mm -hmm. in the major yeah. Western centers. Yeah. So I decided to do some research and I researched if this was true. And um, I got the Institute of Education doing a, a, a big research program. And we discovered that, yes, it's true that numbers had really dropped and not just by regular kids, but by kids who were attending um, music college. Mm. So wow. music students weren't going to live concerts either. Yeah. And yeah. of course, this is a real problem because it's part of their education. You know, sure. it's yeah. when you see a great violinist or a great cellist or a great pianist perform live that you really learn. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to tackle this and I'm going to do a sort of experiment like a sort of like a test tube um, to see um, I, I, I got a thousand kids from inner city London so these were real kids from the from the inner cities from the hoods as you'd say and I got them engaged for different reasons like some of them were interested in the in the history or they were interested in science or they're interested in English different aspects of these big choral works that I, I decided to use. So, for example, the first one we did was Bach, Matthew, Passion. And I thought this has many entry points because if you're interested in humanity or you're interested in bullying or you're interested in... Uh, there's so many points. This, this is like a whole cosmos in one musical piece. Yehudi Menuhin used to call it the, the, the centic cycle. So if you, if you go through a great work, you go through every single emotion hmm. any human being has ever experienced. Yeah. Anger, love, hate, hope, all these things. Wow. And so that was, um, and also that was the work, the Bach Matthew Passion that got me really, that changed my whole world when I was 16. And so I started with that and I got these kids and I did an induction program. So I went, I, I got them uh, to do a lot. I went to their schools or they came to central locations 
And we did this amazing series of workshops about all kinds of aspects. For example, when I did Haydn's creation, I got the Astronomer Royal, that is the, the, the greatest astronomer in the UK, to come and do a computer simulation of the creation of the universe. And then oh, we wow. listened to Haydn's music and it was almost there in visual representation. Oh, wow. So by the super. time, it was so cool. And then by the time we got to the performance, which was fully staged, let's take the Haydn's creation, in a, an underground former cement factory. So it was a really cool space. And these kids were just blown away by it. And then after that, we, we offered them free tickets to other concerts to, to try and get a sort of habit of concert going. And it, and it was really successful. Yeah, that's great. Wow, that, that's amazing. So you also founded the, uh, the London Youth Choir, made up of five choirs, drawing singers aged 8 to 22 from all of London's 32 boroughs and multiple diverse communities. Um, we'd love to hear more about the mission of that program and what type of impact it's had on the community. Yeah, well, th this is, I have wanted to start a world-class youth choir um, since I went on my Winston Churchill traveling fellowship back in 1990. But it took me 20 years to find the right person to start it with. This amazing woman called Rachel Staunton. And when I saw her conduct young singers, I just th thought, that is the person. Yeah. She is the one I want to do this with. Because you've got to have the best team, people who really get mm -hmm. kids and who yeah. can really do it. So back to 1990, when I was traveling around the world and I was studying children's choirs, and I came to see the best community children's choir programs in the world. So in, in the States, I went to the Midwest, I went to, I went to Indianapolis, I went to Chicago, in, I went up to Toronto in Canada, the Toronto mm -hmm. Children's Chorus. I went all over Eastern Europe, great children's choirs in Eastern Europe to Finland. And of course, I'd also spent many, many years in the Far East and observed the great children's choirs. So I really knew what the best was out there. And I and I kind I knew what to cherry pick. I, I really, right. so I I knew what I wanted to to bring to it. And then the the last sort of piece of the puzzle was finding this amazing partner. And so we we and she said, "Oh my God, I can't believe you want to do this. <clears throat> I've been thinking about it too." <clears throat> so. We came together like two enormous magnets <laughs> and it was like a little mini, you know, I don't know, it was like a little explosion. And we said, shall we be crazy and go for this September or shall we be sensible and go for next September? <laughs> so we both said, let's do it this September. <laughs> <laughs> and we set up this and we, we were so lucky because we got the funding. Uh, we went, you know, we, we first of all, we, created our plan and then we went out for the funding and we got the funding right away yeah, lots wow. and lots of funding yeah. because the vision was we want a choir that is london we don't white want mm -hmm. white middle class london we want london mm -hmm. every every demographic Right. every right. single type of kid that you find in london we want it in our choirs <laughs> now that's tough 
because we had to go out and workshop in the school, in the difficult schools, in the far-flung boroughs. We had to go out there, find the talent, and then that was the easy part. Mm -hmm. The tough part is getting these kids across London to a central right. venue to rehearse yeah. and yeah. getting them coming week after week after week. Sure. So we got a lot of funding. We were very lucky to get funding from the arts, you know, from the London government to fund this because they saw this as a really, really bad, because communities were becoming more and more siloed and more and more, almost there's been a regression over the last 20 years of communities closing in on themselves. Mm -hmm. yeah. And this was one of the things the, the, the funders found so exciting because a lot of, they just thought, yeah, singing is the one thing that can do this. Yes. Right. And it's worked. So now we have wow. kids from um, you know, all kinds of religious backgrounds, all kinds of ethnic backgrounds. Yes, we have the white middle class, but we also have lots of representation from all the other communities. Mm -hmm. So it really does. You come and see our choirs, they really do look like London. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's awesome. And it's, it's amazing how music can really just bring everyone together. It doesn't matter, you know, what your background is, right? It can just bring us together and, oh, uh, I mean, and, and, and hopefully, so yeah, right. And, and hopefully get us to recognize that, uh, you know, that, that we're all very similar, exactly. right? You know, yeah. so. We um, really are similar. And, yeah. you know, it's, it's amazing in the choir schools where um, all the kids are in their, in their long robes. So they're all dressed the same. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they don't think, you know, what does your, what do your parents do? You know, what kind of shoes are you wearing? What right. kind of background? They don't care. They just, right. they just, they, what they want to sing like that kid down, <laughs> down the first, the third row on the left. They want <laughs> right. to sing like that kid, mm -hmm. but exactly. they really don't care about anything else. Yep. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it's great. So another part of your profession is an artistic director and conductor for many different groups. So can you tell our young audience more about the conductor's job? So this is a really tough thing to explain to people because what you see is you see someone in a penguin suit standing on a platform flapping their arms around and you have no idea how that bears any relation to what you're hearing right and a lot of people ask me what do you do up there you know yeah. so actually the best way to to find out what we do is to come to a rehearsal mm. and come to a rehearsal where with uh, you know with a score and see what goes on in the rehearsal because yeah. that's where it all happens. Yes. And with a with a choir, it depends what kind of choir. Because if it's a big community choir with lots of old ladies and you know mixed in with young people and stuff and they don't really read music very well, that's mm -hmm. a different type of rehearsal. You mm, have sure. a different function uh, than if you're working with a whole load of professional singers who are just looking at their watch to see when the session's going to be over and they can go to the pub. <laughs> and they all sight read perfectly and they've all, con they've all performed for every single conductor and they've all performed every single piece of music and they're right. quite cynical and, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. But you are serving the music. Yeah. And the, so two things. Number one is you are bringing the music via the choir to the audience. Mm -hmm. The second thing is you are enhancing the life 
of those singers. You are making them feel, number one, you're making them feel better about themselves. Number two, you are making them do things they never thought they could do. Greater than the sum of the parts. So they'll come out of the, the concert or the rehearsal thinking, Jesus, that was incredible. Yeah. How did we do that? Mm-hmm. So that's my job. Yeah. And how you do it, your toolkit is something you build up over many, many, many years and many mistakes and many <laughs> humiliations and many embarrassments <laughs> and all that stuff. But so, so it's never a, a clear path and every group of singers provides a different challenge. But you've got to have, your hands have got to work. So that's the technical side. You, you, you've got to know what you're doing with your hands uh, and they call that gesture or stick yeah. technique right mm-hmm. the the but more important than that because some great conductors can conduct with their hands behind their back mm-hmm. they're using their eyes almost right. you know yeah but the important thing is your ears yeah and also to teach people how to hear how to listen that's your main job yeah your your so being a musician is how you respond to what you're hearing in the moment that is what a, being a musician is. Yeah. And that is your job. So it's a huge, huge, complicated issue, this thing of being a conductor. <laughs> it's psychology as well. Yeah. yeah. You yeah, know, it's, a, it's all psychology. You've got to read those people. You've got to yes. read them. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. you've got to make, and it's time management. Yes. Because you all never have enough rehearsals. Right. And right. you have yeah. got right. to, there's no such thing as failure. You yeah. have got to take them to a place that is a, the best performance they can possibly give of the work. Wow, it's a big job. <laughs> big so job. Sp- speaking of conducting, you, uh, we read that you conduct a 2,000-voice choir uh, in the Royal Albert Hall in London. That, that's got to be pretty amazing. Can you tell us about that experience? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, the first thing to say is the Messiah is, thankfully, an indestructible work. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you, you know, until you have brought your baton down, which is the stick we use for conducting, until you've brought it down on the downbeat for the first time in the Albert Hall with 2,000 singers and a huge orchestra and 7,000 <laughs> audience, you don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> you know, especially with a, with a, um, a youth choir. Because what, what we did was we, it was the first time ever this has happened. So we basically invited, I think it was 50 youth choirs from all over the UK. They were bussed in on the day for a scratch youth massage. So we put it together on the day. Wow. Can you believe that? Yeah. So so each of those choirs learned their parts and we sent them all the educational materials. We sent them all the rehearsal tracks and they turned up ready to go. And I just put it together on the, I patched it together on the day. And so uh, it's number one, you, it's a huge space. So I wore a bright orange shirt for <laughs> the rehearsal so everyone could see me because I was this little person down in this podium, <laughs> huge podium. And a little story I have for you. For you. So the first time I did it, um, I got to my dressing room after this m- crazy day of rehearsal where, you know, the orchestra has to clock off. It's a professional orchestra, so we couldn't go over it mm. by a minute, otherwise we have right, to pay right. them 
yep. squillions yeah. of dollars extra. <laughs> so I got to my dressing room and the audience was already starting to come in. And I realized I'd forgotten my trousers, my conducting trousers. <laughs> so there I was oh, in my yeah. tailcoat and my lovely bow tie and <laughs> lovely white shirt and my baton and no trousers. <laughs> So, oh, oh, you call them pants, don't you, over there? Yes. Right. So yes. I had no pants, and so I had to conduct using my exercise leggings. And so I had to hold my head high and walk out onto the platform. Actually, I look, I look pretty cool. But anyway, it's one of those things that's going to go into the, into the list of stories oh, man, of funny. conducting catastrophes. But it all, it all went fantastically well, yeah. and as long as you're super clear, you have to be very clear. And the, 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 uh, the question that conductors should be asking their orchestra and their singers in a situation like this is, am I being clear? <laughs> Can I do any more to help you? Right. Yes. You know? yeah. And uh, that's really what it's all about, being very, very clear, big, clear gestures. Yeah. And, and remember your pants. Right. <laughs> and remember your pants, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so I'd like I'd like to switch to um, to the Aura Singers, um, which was named the best ensemble of the year in 2018, and it's a group that you artistically direct, which recently held an amazing live stream performance during the global pandemic we were all facing, and everyone was appropriately social distancing while singing, and we'll actually link to that performance in the show notes uh, for people to check out if that's okay. Um, Sure, but absolutely. so to give some context to the audience, typically when we're singing in a choral ensemble, we're fairly close together, and the blending of voices is a pretty big part to the overall sound produced. So, mm. first, was the social distancing difficult to manage in terms of blending the voices, or did it open something new to consider for future performances? Mm. Very, very interesting question, and a question that I've been asked many times since that broadcast. Yeah. So the first thing to say is that we are approaching 500,000 views for that That's concert. That's awesome. Wow. Yeah, it was so amazing. So it clearly, it clearly hit the spot. Yeah. Now, when it comes to um, the musical um, outcome, which includes blend ensemble, which is how everything glues together, mm -hmm. is the biggest challenge with a piece with a 40 part piece like Speminalium. So this is 40 separate parts. Normally we sing in four parts or eight parts. This is 40 parts. Well, so yeah. even in the best of circumstances, this is a piece, the Talis Speminalium is a piece that can fall apart. Hmm. It's, t it's notoriously difficult to perform. Right. And the conductor has to be incredibly clear because each singer has their part, but if they get lost, there's no way of coming back. Yeah. And you have one singer per part, that's 40 singers on 40 parts. And if, if, if the, you know, the fifth soprano, uh, soprano one gets lost, you can't, the, te the texture is so thick, mm -hmm. they can't use their ears to get back. Mm. So they have, they have to be watching you like a hawk. And it's no good they just follow one of your beats. They have to follow the downbeat, the second beat, the third beat, and the fourth beat, because it's rhythmically quite complex, and they have lots of bars of rest. So um, 
it's like a trombone player with like a million bars of rest and right. they have to come in in the right yeah, spot. Exactly, you know? right, yeah. And, um, oh, by the way, I have a funny story about that too, if you want later. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, anyway, um, so we were in, this, in the Tate Modern, which is this iconic, huge space where we had marked out on the floor two meters distance mm -hmm. between each singers and three meters distance between us and the next singer in front of us. So a huge, huge area where these 40 singers were spaced. Mm. Um, but the distance between me and the most furthest singer was like in the Albert Hall when I had 2000 singers, it was oh, huge wow. distance. But the trick is number one, if you're blessed with a good acoustic, which we were, <clears throat> right. yeah. and number two is that you have to train the singers to what to to follow the beat they see, and not the beat they hear, mm. because it takes a couple of seconds for the sound to get to them. Yeah, right. You know, so so if you if you wait for what the beat you hear, you're you're lot you're stuck, you're stuffed. Right. Right. But if you're following the beat you see exactly as you see it. There's no reason why the ensemble shouldn't be perfect. Sure. And the rest is up to the engineers, the sound engineers, the recording engineers to get to do their job. Okay. So wow. luckily, I mean, I had 40 of the best choral musicians in the world and they were all absolutely on it because it's yeah. technically difficult. It's vocally difficult. It's really, really tough music. And we put the whole thing together. That's the Speminalium and the, new commission from Sir James Macmillan, which is a 40-part reflection of Speminalium, which was really difficult. Uh, we had to put that all together in three hours rehearsal oh, on the wow. day. Also wow. socially distanced in a different right. venue. Oh, wow. So it was, it was high stakes. Yeah. And we, it was very lucky, we, you know, lucky and skillful on the part of the singers that we put it, we got it together. Yeah, it's amazing. And so the Aura Singers, yeah, they, they really are incredible. And, and we were actually lucky enough to have your group's recording for our interview with Eric Whitaker. We were discussing yes. his piece, uh, Luke Sarumque. And uh, so yes. first, I want to thank you for that, for um, allowing us to use um, your group's uh, recording. Um, so could you tell us more about the Aura Singers, uh, how many voices, um, which I, you kind of yes. described already, but uh, how long the group has been together? Yeah, just a little more information about that, uh, that group. Well, for the Tate Modern Speminalium concert we've just been describing, we got 40 singers, 40 professional singers. So we, right. we fleshed out the, the, the standard number. We, we usually have 18. Okay. The reason we have 18 singers is that we can commission works with split voices. So we can have double soprano. We can have eight-part pieces. We can have 12-part mm. pieces. Right. Uh, we can have 18-part pieces. <laughs> But it, so it's the right number to, to really be able to commission new works where the composer can really go to town with split split parts. Cool. So basically what happened was I've been, I've, I've been told by music publishers that I'm the most prolific independent commissioner of new music in the world today. Wow. And I'm very proud to hold that, yeah. um, at that, that accolade, if you like. So I've been commissioning new choral music for 30 years um, really because when I, get, when I get a group, each group has, it's all about repertoire. And each group has different challenges and different, different things that they need. So I've always commissioned music for my group so that I can get the best out of them. Mm 
But one day I kind of woke up and I thought, we are in a new golden age. Something's happened. And all over the world, composers, young composers, are for the first time in maybe centuries, there's this big kind of generation of incredible talent composing uh, music that audiences want to hear. Now, one of the pioneers of this is, is of course, uh, Morton Lauridsen. Mm-hmm. You know, his Omanya Mysterium that we were all, that every choir in the world wanted to sing at Christmas. Mm-hmm. You know, that was, that was a new language of music that was beautiful, but still original and still, and, and something that audiences wanted to hear. Because usually for many, many decades, audiences were kind of scared of new music. You know, you'd have to kind of sneak it into the second half. <laughs> right. Like bad medicine, you know. Yeah. And, and just before the Brahms, they all wanted to come and hear, <laughs> you know. So, um, but this, this thing where, for the first time, I think, maybe since the 18th century, that, uh, that you have music that critics like, that the singers like, that the audiences like, and the musicians like. You know, that's, that's, yeah. this is a new, new era. Yeah. And so I thought, okay, I have got to create a legacy for the 21st century. And I want to commission a hundred new choral works from a hundred of the best choral composers in the world. But I want to reflect the last golden age, which was mm. the great golden age of the Renaissance, yeah. mm. where you have composers like, Talis and Bird yeah. and Gibbons and mm. Palestrina yeah. and yeah. these great, great, great composers, which was the, the last golden age of the unaccompanied a cappella, right. small scale yeah. choral work. Right. Mm-hmm. And we've never matched that in 500 years until now. So I launched it and I thought, okay, so it's one thing commissioning it, but I need 18 of the best singers in the world yeah. to get this down in recordings. So I created Aura Singers for this project. So wow. essentially to commission and record to the, with the best recording engineers, the best singers and the best music. And I'm going to do it in, in and we've already recorded nine albums in five mm-hmm. years. Wow. And we've done, we're halfway through. So in five years, we've commissioned and recorded 50 of the 100. Wow. wow. Yeah, that's amazing. So yeah, so and and you actually have a new. There's a new album released. Um, that's it. Yeah. Can so you that's tell- the. Sure. Go so ahead. so that's the that is based because 2020 is about five years ago. Someone said, "Do you realize in 2020 it's going to be the 450th anniversary of Talis's great 40-part Spermanalium, mm-hmm. which is like for us in Europe that that's like the sort of, it's the monolith of mm-hmm. choral music. Right. It's like until you've sung Spermanalium, you, you haven't really, you know, it's a rite of passage. Yeah. And so we thought we'd make a big thing. So I thought, okay, I'm going to commission a, a, a reflection and it's going to be the halfway point of our Aura 100. And so I got, I asked James McMillan, Sir James McMillan, if he would write a 40 part reflection. And to my amazement, he said yes. And he's produced this masterpiece. Yeah. And so, our record label said, yeah, we want to do this. And 
And so the records, the disc starts with the Talis 40 part and it ends with the Macmillan 40 part. And in the middle, we have these very small, much smaller scale, amazing little masterpieces for one voice per part, but smaller scale works, which are all commissioned works from about, about the time that Spemnalium was composed. Yeah, that's awesome. Oh, that's amazing. Um, I was re recently heard your thoughts uh, when people say, oh, I can't sing or I'm tone deaf. And in the West, we have this idea of, you know, a good singer. Or, oh, I'm not a good singer. Um, and I had a quick story to share with you that really uh, kind of illuminated this. I had a family member, still have a family member, that uh, they, uh, she really wasn't the best singer. And uh, everyone would say, oh, she's tone deaf and, you know, she can't sing. And I thought, no, you know, she, she can sing. She just hasn't been taught. So I had her stand by the piano one day and I said, just sing a note, sing la, and just hold that note out. And I went down the piano keyboard and as soon as I hit her note, she looked at me like someone had poured cold water all, all over her. And she was like, hey, that's the note I was singing. And I said, yeah, that, that's, the, that's the note you were singing. And then from there, once she knew what to listen for, we went up up and down the keyboard and did a couple of exercises. And and I said, see, you can sing. There's no, you know, we everyone can oh, sing. Oh, my goodness. If you, if you can oh. hear your own your own voice speaking, you, you can sing. And then that moves oh, into goodness. the idea of the, you know, around the world, singing isn't one of the, you know, it's I'm a good or a bad singer. It's it's part of life. You know, it's, it's just like speaking. It's oh, my goodness. A You're different way so to communicate. right. Yeah. So what is what is your experience been with this? What, is, what are your thoughts? Okay. Well, number one, you absolutely hit the jackpot with the way you got through to her because if you had gone to the piano and you had played a b flat and said sing that note right right and because it's a very complex process if you're not skilled and trained right. to especially if you've had all kinds of psychological blocks from mm. a very young age mm. it's a very complex process to hear a note and then reproduce it in your right. voice and she could, she wouldn't have been able to, and then mm -hmm. she, that would have just reinforced. You see, I'm exactly. toned down. Yeah, right. exactly. But the yeah. fact that you said you find a pitch, and I will match it. Right. And then she experienced unison for the first time in her life, and this is the very center point of our methodology that we use. I don't know if you've heard of Zoltan Kodai, the great sure. Hungarian yes. music educator. Yeah. Yes. So this is exactly his starting point you get a group of kids you go the and you put the weak link in other words the child who has not yet found their singing voice mm -hmm. at the center and you find a game where they initiate the pitch usually with a falling minor third which is the mm -hmm. cuckoo sound mm -hmm. yep and um, they, everybody in the playground can go na 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 no. <laughs> so me la so me right. everyone could do that and you get a game that uses those pitches and you get the group to sing back at them what they've just sung. Right. Mm -hmm. And then bingo, you've got unison singing. And so you start that way. And I have been, I've spent years and years and years using the Kodai methodology yes. and it's games and it's fun mm -hmm. and every single child without exception will find their singing voice mm -hmm. and they will match pitch yeah. but you've got to do it in schools and you've got to do it every day and you've got to do it through well uh, my view is you've got to do it through the class teacher so we go into schools and we we train the teachers to do this and they love it yeah. because they can see what the benefits are for their kids 
So, I mean, sometimes you have Down syndrome kid who for right. two years, they're playing the games, they're playing the games, but they're not, they're not singing. And then suddenly one day it all <laughs> comes out. All that stuff they've been gestating for years and years, it all comes out. So it's a big, 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 big subject, which I've spent years and years and years investigating and researching. And I've been all over the world to African uh, communities, to Eastern European communities where there are sing strong singing cultures. And if you can hear, uh, I'll just mm -hmm. give an example. If you can hear someone's accent yeah. and you can tell where they come from, you are not tone deaf. Frankly, exactly. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. That shows that you are not tone deaf. Yeah. Now, there is maybe some very, 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 very rare condition somewhere where people can't hear an accent. Yeah. But I, I've, I don't know what that condition is, and I've not come across it. <laughs> but tone deaf is a nonsense right uh, terminology it's always frustrating me when i hear that term and i oh i bite my tongue and <laughs> yeah because it's such a joy and yeah. to, to see the kids when they when they have that aha experience when and they they finally hear their their own voice it's just a joy to see their their face light up and they're and they're so enjoying the singing it's the know, best thing but else. you know it's sometimes teachers are to blame you know they'll say oh mm. just mime this bit you know or uh, or parents will say, oh, my George isn't musical. Mm, or, right. you know, my Sarah is tone deaf. I've heard that. Yes. yes. You know, and it's, yeah. it's, it's awful because then, mm. and the other thing I always forbid from the very youngest age is never laugh. You're not allowed to laugh. Exactly. Because yeah. I do a lot of individual singing. Never yeah. laugh at somebody else's singing. Right. Mm -hmm. Because immediately you get locked in. Mm, right. and, and then it's a, very, it's a big psychological problem. Right. Yeah. And speaking of kids, uh, many of our listeners are kids, and we always like to ask our guests uh, for some wisdom, some some advice as they explore the world of music around them. Do you have any any wisdom for our advice for our, our listeners? Sorry, so that again. So, our many of our listeners are kids, so we were yeah. cur curious if you had any advice or bits of wisdom that you might share oh, wow. with our listeners yeah. as they explore the world. I mean, you've already shared a lot, of course, <laughs> yeah. but anything, you know, to kind of uh, wrap up to, uh, to share with them about the world of music around them as they explore it. Well, um, I think uh, um, there is so much good music. I think the way you listen to music is imp important. So when you listen to music, try really to listen to it rather than just hear it mm. and go with your passion. I mean, if there's a certain type of music you love, really get passionate about it. The other thing I would say is if you want to develop your own listening skills and your listenability, join a choir. Mm -hmm. yes. Join yeah. a choir because you can learn so much um, about music. And if um, it depends really on your age. So... Um, find a really good choral program that you that you're going to enjoy and 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 find teachers you know inspiring teachers so quite often if you learn an instrument and most people give up before they get to a useful stage and that's because their ear isn't trained yeah. and the great thing about a good choral program is that you can get your ear trained yeah. before you start learning an instrument right and then it's it's a it's a much smoother passage to to learn. And the only time I've really ever said to my foot, put my foot down, well, my, the only time my father ever put his foot down with me, 
was when I wanted to give up. I was a really good pianist. And then about the age of 14, I wanted to give up and he wouldn't let me. And we fought for a year. <laughs> I just wanted to go to parties right. and I wanted to give up because I was having to practice like two hours a day. And he, for the first time ever, he just put his foot down. He said, no, 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 no. And he wouldn't let me give up. And now, thank God, <laughs> he didn't let me give up yeah. because now it's my life. It's my passion. Yeah. Um, and I kind of did the same with my son, but I had to do it through bribery. <laughs> I bribed him. <laughs> well, that works too. Yeah, we <laughs> Well, Susie, uh, we want to thank you again um, for your great music and for taking your time to chat with us on the Music Podcast for Kids. We wish you all the best um, as you continue leading the world in music. So uh, thank you so much again, and um, we hope to uh, continue to listen to your great music. Thank you so much, and goodbye to the kids, and goodbye to you. Thank all you. Right. Thanks, thank you, Susie. Bye-bye. Time to wrap it up, folks. Thank you so much for tuning into the Music Podcast for Kids. We hope you enjoyed the show, and most importantly, learned something cool today about music. Remember to send in your jokes or even a topic in music you would like us to discuss by visiting our website, themusicpodcastforkids.com. If you are interested in awesome educational and fun songs for your kids to listen and sing along with, please visit brucefight.com. Music is available to download with iTunes, CD Baby, and Facebook. And most streaming platforms like Spotify and Amazon Radio. Links will be found in the show notes. If you are interested in learning how to play the piano with a fun and engaging curriculum geared toward kids, please subscribe to Mr. Henry's YouTube channel called Mr. Henry's Music World. Links will be found in the show notes. Please visit iTunes to leave a review of the podcast and also share the podcast with friends, relatives, aliens, whoever. Again, we thank you so much for tuning in.